0: You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So this whole month we've been talking about Calvinism and Arminianism and I remember at the beginning of the month I asked how many of you had ever heard of those words and maybe a little more than half of you have and now you're all experts on predestination and free will and so we're going to continue that talk today and kind of conclude it and then next month Everybody say, next month. We are finally tackling this topic. As the Mill Sunday School leaders, we we meet every month and we talk about topics and what we're going to talk about. And I feel like it was about a year ago we talked about, oh, we should talk about conspiracy theories. And everybody was like, ooh, yeah, let's talk about it. And I was kind of like, oh, that's such a weird thought. We'll talk about it later. We'll just talk. And I, t- I said, we'll talk about it next summer, as if like next summer would never come. But here it is. Uh, and so, next month, the month of August, we're going to talk about like religious Christian conspiracy theories, not random conspiracy theories like who killed JFK or the prison that's underneath DIA or cocaine and coke, or weird things like, we'll probably mention them as silly, uh, fun things to talk about um, and discuss, but we won't talk about them as actual conspiracy theories anyways. So, um, let's introduce our speaker. Adam, come on up. This is Adam Molesky. He's been on staff. He's been on staff for years now, and He is going to tackle the subject of the middle ground, right, between maybe I'm taking away your thunder. So I'll just sit down. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: Adam Maleski. Hey, guys. All right. Yeah, so like Joe said, we've been in this topic of uh, free will and predestination for the whole month of July. This is the last week. Next week, we're going to switch topics. But I wanted to take this week and kind of go, like I said, the first three weeks we've been looking at. The differences, all of the like the history behind the two viewpoints, and today I wanted to kind of talk about the unity that we can find. And some of you are already like, "Hold on a second, that doesn't work." Some of you Calvinists are like, "I'm never going to get along with Arminianists," but uh, I think we can do it. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, I want to open up to Ephesians four one through three. I'll give you a second to get there. Uh, there's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about unity, um, and Unity is a, is a beautiful thing. It's something that I think that we're called to, uh, called to search for, whether or, not we, um, whether or not we feel it. It's something that we should work for. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I'll read it out of the NIV. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, uh, and what that, that's a letter from Paul, and what he's saying is, uh, m- we should be making all of our efforts, we should be working hard to find unity uh, in this time in the time that he wrote this scripture, there was new teachings happening around the world in the church that were kind of confusing people, and, w- and people were getting upset at each other, people were uh, ascribing to different. I guess you could call it, like they were kind of church fathers, church pastors, and people uh, were confused. There were fights quarreling amongst the church, and he's saying, look for unity. Make every effort to find unity. Um, And so as we begin, I want to just pray uh, that this will be something that we can work towards in our lives. Lord, uh, as we, uh, as Sunday school, as the mill, as young theologians, uh, Lord, I just ask that you could show us the importance of unity, Lord, that you can show us that in the midst of our differing views and opinions on what your word means and what what it says, God, that you would uh, draw us together as a body, draw us together through the the bond of the Spirit, Lord, that we would have unity in our lives and in our relationships and in our churches uh, and even outside of our local churches, Lord, that as the, the church as a whole, Lord, that there would be unity amongst us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so, free will and predestination. Uh, you guys, after a month, if you've been here all the first three weeks, you guys are basically experts now. Like Joe said, you know the details of it. You know the history behind it. You know, uh, like, like, there's the two sides of the argument. You, there was a panel up here on, was it the first week or the second week? First week. Uh, and Annie Tuttle and Jordan and Aaron Higgins were up here. And... Uh, So you heard from the Calvinist, the Arminianist point, and then you heard Aaron Higgins brought the Molinist point, which was a new thing that some of us hadn't heard. I'd never heard of it before as far as that was named. Uh, The Molinist is kind of like the middle ground between those. Uh, And I don't want to get my talk, my point today, confused with the middle ground. So as much as I love Aaron Higgins, I'm not necessarily saying we should be searching for the middle ground and trying to get our beliefs to to meet up with Molinism, what I'm trying to say is that even though we might be on the two sides of the argument, uh, we can still be unified. Um, Basically, I want to talk about this idea, uh, and it might be a little bit hard for us as people who are trying to find truth and trying to have our theology packed up really tightly and really cleanly, um, this idea that we, we have to be okay with being wrong. Um, the, the example I want to give is in the Bible, when you, we hear the story of the Messiah, there's these Jewish scholars, these guys who memorize the Torah from like age five. I think it's age five or something. They have to have the whole thing memorized. Uh, it's very early in their life. So these guys, they're, they're old, they're distinguished scholars. They know the scriptures. They know the prophecies. Uh, and they're looking out for the Messiah. They're looking for him to come. And they they have their ideas and their mindsets and because of these mindsets and the, how well they knew the prophecies and the scriptures, this little baby was born and they didn't see it coming. In fact, they rejected him because it didn't fit in their theology. Uh, and they missed out on something really, really beautiful in the history of, of us, in the history of the world because of the fact that they were so entrenched in what they believed and what they had told themselves was, to, was going to happen. Um, and I think this is the same for what we're looking at with free will and predestination. I think there's, there's such a value to having the discussion and having the argument or the debate about what is true and what does this all mean for us. Uh, but at the same time, there's another part of it where I think we have to kind of step back from that and say we have to be okay with the other person being right, with us being wrong, or in some cases we have to be okay with not, not knowing the answer, and, and in that case, I think it's like, if we were to say that we're arguing between answer A and answer B, like the scholars and the, the old Jewish scholars at the turn of the century, or sorry, the turn of the millennia, um, as they were looking at that, they were arguing, is, it, is the Messiah going to come this way, or is the Messiah going to come this way? And God kind of surprised them by throwing in answer C, and they were all wrong, uh, and they missed it. So, not to say that I think that we're necessarily wrong in arguing this but I think we have to be okay with it being a different answer than what we're expecting. Uh, Joe's used this little uh, chart that you've seen throughout the week the weeks here Uh, there's predestination and Calvinism on on one side and free will and Arminianism on the other side Um, and what I want to do is kind of erase these lines and talk about how we can have both um, and so, you guys are thinking that maybe I'm talking about can we all just get along? And yes, that's what I'm talking about. But really, what I'm talking about is in the midst of our quarreling, like it says in Ephesians 4 uh, 1 through 3, we should be striving to keep this bond of unity. And it isn't like this coexists, like you've all seen the bumper sticker, you know, where all the different religions are thrown in. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on. Uh, and you might, you might be a little bit hesitant to even discuss this idea. Uh, but it's not about. The idea of pulling all the religions in, it's talking about in, in Christianity and in uh, belief in our God, uh, how can we find this unity? So the first discussion question that I want to start with today uh, is talking about the idea of unity, and here it is. When we talk about unity, should, should we be striving for unity in our beliefs in the sense that we should all make sure that everyone believes the same thing, or should we be striving for unity despite our beliefs? So if you just want to take a few minutes, talk with people at your, uh, at your table. If you're not at a table with more than two people or if you're by yourself, jump into another table and meet some people and tell them your name. It's a good chance to know each other. But yeah, talk about this idea. Should we strive for unity in our beliefs or should we strive for unity despite our beliefs? All right. So hopefully you guys have had some good discussions. Uh, like I said, I want to hear kind of what your opinions are on this. Joe uh, here has the microphone. And if you guys... Maybe someone from each table, raise your hand and just kind of talk about what you, what you think as far as beliefs go. Anyone? check. It works. Good. All right, Joe, to your left. My left? Your other left. There you go.
0: Other uh, left.
2: So for us, we, we took the example of Christ, which is... You want to meet people right where they're at, and they need to be loved right where they're at, no matter what they believe. However, in relationship, ultimately, it is our duty to lead them to truth, and so that's what we're called to do with the Great Commission. Meet them where they're at, love them where they're at, and then lead them to Christ.
1: Okay. In the back. Oh,
0: Chris. Yeah,
1: Russell. All right. Hand the um, mic
0: off. Oh. <laughs> we just, we talked about it like with marriage. So my wife and I, we disagree on pretty much everything. <laughs> but we still get along. And uh, it's a good thing to have disagreements and things that are unique because it sharpens you. So you get to work through those things. And that's the way we kind of combine that together. So we took it as a, a marriage and a, and a couple. So
1: Yeah. There's a marriage, like people talk about the covenant, it goes beyond disagreements. Things like that. Annie our, Tuttle has... Annie Tuttle, has, yep. our resident Calvinist.
3: Um, so I was just looking at the passage right after the passage that you read um, in Ephesians 4. It's verses 4 through 6 that say, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And the thought that I had was that we should be striving for unity in belief when it comes to um, matters of the body of Christ. So our Lord, our faith, our baptism, the authority of Scripture, the close-handed things. Um, But when it comes to um, striving for unity despite belief, um, I believe that that comes up when there's division over trivial things, the things that, um, that we debate because we want to be like God.
1: Yeah
0: good anyone else at our table we talked about how a group of atheists about a year ago came to the Mill Sunday school for a couple months and so by definition we had no similar ground with us and their beliefs in no god but we still welcomed them and had i don't know what we were just nice to them we didn't kick them out we didn't say no coffee for you we, we it was just I don't know if it was unity or just this idea of being nice to them, but um, that's what we talked about. Yeah,
1: well, good. Yeah, like Annie said, th- there's other scriptures that talk about unity. I think Annie, the cool thing about what you read uh, is those th- that little passage. There's hints of like the Nicene Creed in there, and Joe's talked about this closed handed and open handed issue, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But uh, but yeah, I wanted to read another verse, First Corinthians one ten. Um, and I'll just read this to you. It's 10 through 12. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And I read that as I was searching through this and I was like, man, maybe, maybe the, like, what we should be working towards is unity in our beliefs, like that we should all make sure that we all believe the same thing. And if we can do that, then that's, like, ideal. Um, but the next verse is, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, in this time there were all these divisions, uh, and Paul in 1 Corinthians says, uh, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So I think what, what this verse is talking about and why... At first, I was like, man, we should be working towards unity in our beliefs. We should have the same beliefs. We should be perfectly united in mind and thought, like that word, that scripture says. Um, but this verse, I think, is talking about uh, maybe what we're talking about, this Calvinist. We've put a name on something, an Arminianist, uh, like John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, and we look at that, and we're like, I'm, I follow John Calvin. I follow his thoughts. Uh, or I'm Team Jacob, right? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, So some of us, you know, like we're, I think the point that we should be making here is that we should first of all say, I follow Jesus, I follow Christ, I follow his word, I follow his truth. And then second to that is this other discussion. Uh, we We shouldn't be so firm on Calvinist. People are having discussions at their table on which team they are right now. Sorry, I distracted you. I think... Yeah, Jason and Dan are on the same team. They just high-fived each other. <laughs> Out of curiosity, which team is it? All right. Sweet. So, so yeah, so basically what the idea is, uh, yeah, we follow Christ. All of us in this room, I think, could say we follow Christ more than we followed John Calvin, more than we followed Jacob, Arminius, uh, and that's the point here. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, okay, I want to talk about this idea of nominalism. Uh, nominalism comes into this debate with Calvinism and Arminianism in a big way. And some of you might not notice it. Some of you might not even know what it is. And in fact, I didn't know what it really was. Um, nominalism is this, it's this part of uh, psychology, or not psychology. It's part of our thinking, our, part of our theology. It influences our theology and our thoughts. And basically what it is, is this, um, it's this thing that is very heavily uh, reliant on the either or type of argument. It's the, it, everything kind of has to make sense in our minds. Everything has to add up. Everything has to be whole and complete. And it's, it's a little bit hard to explain, so I kind of have some pictures to help you understand what it is, um, but I think that, that in our lenses, we have these like nominalist lenses because it's the way that we've been trained and taught how to think. Um, and until you can kind of look at it and realize, recognize it, then I think we're always going to think this way. So I have this picture here, and this picture is two ox pulling a cart. Um, and so nominalist thinking would look at that and they'd say, well, if the goal is to pull the cart and one of the ox... The oxen is pulling the cart and they're pulling, that one is pulling 75% of the weight. How much is the other ox pulling? Can you tell me? 25% of the weight. It's not a trick question. So we look at this and we say if 75% of the weight is being pulled by one, 25% of the weight has to be being pulled by the other. Um, And we look at that and that makes sense to us. But I think that this argument of Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination free will is different than. A cart being pulled by oxen. What it is, is it's like a masterpiece. Can any of you guys tell me what this is? Does anyone know? Statue of David. Does anyone know who is the artist? Michelangelo. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So a little history on this. This is a really big masterpiece. It's world famous. Michelangelo sculpted it around 1501 to 1504 is when he was working on. He was commissioned By his city, basically, they had this giant building that was really beautiful, and they said, We want a sculpture to go on top. So they're going to put this on the roof. Uh, If any of you guys know the history of this statue, it's not on a roof. It didn't make it to the roof. After the three years that he sculpted it, uh, they realized that this 17 foot tall, six ton statue wouldn't be the easiest thing to get on the top of a roof. They didn't really have the tools, and they thought, well, let's put together a group of people to decide where it should go instead, because they paid him to build something for the top of a roof. So a group of people led by this guy named Leonardo da Vinci, uh, they basically came together and they said, where should we put this? They decided that there was this statue in town that was made by a guy named Donatello, and that statue should get moved... Uh, and this statue of David should replace Donatello's statue. Um, so that's how Ninja Turtles got their start. That's where they all came together. I don't know. I think Raphael jumped into the party late. I, he wasn't really in this part of the story. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so we have this statue, and it's a masterpiece. And Michelangelo sculpted it o- over three years out of this giant square rock of marble, um, they say that this, this actual piece is made with this marble that falls apart really easily. So it's pretty impressive that it came out so beautifully. Um, but back to the idea is nominalist thinking would say uh, in the sculpting, if the goal is to sculpt the statue of David, uh, then there has to be, it has to all add up. And so I don't know the tools necessarily that Michelangelo used if they looked like this. Um, but basically you have a chisel and a hammer... And nominalist thinking, in essence, in its perfect form, might say that, well, if you're using a hammer and you're using a chisel, and the chisel does 25% of the work, the hammer does 50% of the work, and the artist does 25% of the work. But you think, well, not really. The artist did all of the work. He's the one holding the hammer. He's the one holding the chisel. So you can't really... ascribe numbers to it. You can't really put a percentage on how much work the chisel did and how much work the hammer did. Um, so you kind of step back from the argument of where did the work come from and you would say that the chisel sculpted 100% of the statue. But at the same time, the hammer sculpted 100% of the sketch statue. And in the midst, even with those things being true, you wouldn't say that the hammer and the chisel I mean, we don't have... Like, if you see this sculpture, it doesn't say the statue of David by David and his hammer and his chisel. Uh, The artist is... uh, Sorry, not by David, by Michelangelo. The artist is Michelangelo. Uh, The creator is Michelangelo. And so, if we were to take this uh, non-nominalistic look at predestination and free will, you you might have heard the picture of, like, well, we're in a pit, and God... Does God put a ladder down in the pit and we climb up? Or does he just pull us out of the pit? How much work does that do? Uh, how much work does God do? How much work do we do? Uh, but the anti-nominalist or the non-nominalist f- way of thought would be that for God to put that ladder down and to save us out of the pit doesn't mean that he isn't doing all of the work. Does that make sense? Does that kind of work? Hopefully I've explained it well. Um, there's this quote by this guy. He's a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, he was in, like, he's pretty well known. He lived in Rome. Uh, I can't say his name. Survey, pink hairs, or something. But he, he, this quote says, In nominalist theology, human freedom and divine grace were opposed in the manner of two landowners, landowners disputing over human actions. What was ascribed to grace seemed, seemed, by that very fact, taken away from freedom. What was attributed to freedom as merit seemed to diminish grace. From nominalism on, so when nominalism kind of entered our thinking as humanity, as the world, a choice had to be made. One could not exalt man without slighting God, nor exalt God without diminishing man. And what this is saying is, as we look at the debate, I think a lot of times we jump into this argument of, well, if God gives us choice, then he's not sovereign. Or if God doesn't give us choice, then he's not giving us freedom. And I think that what this guy is saying is it's not really the case. There's that in the way that we think, we have to fit it into that uh, mold sometimes, but that's not really true. Uh, we can exalt God, or sorry, we can exalt man to an extent and say that we have a choice, and it doesn't diminish God's sovereignty. It doesn't diminish his, uh, his authorship of salvation. Um, so, looking at nominalism, uh, recognizing that it's, that we all look through a lens that has nominalism in it. Let's look at these things and say, where can we find the unity among the church and among believers? Um, You you know, the tulip is the five, uh, it's the acrostic of Calvinism. And so Joe has set up this chart kind of, uh, I don't know that Arminianism would say that they have an acrostic other than a response to Calvinism, but you guys have seen this before. There's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Um, and I think that, for me, I'm oddly comfortable with a chart like this, where we take believers and we put them on one side of the fence and the other side of the fence, and we say that we're different. We're just going to be, I mean, we can't agree on this. Uh, and this is a debate that's raged for hundreds of years. Um, and some of us look at this chart and we're like, man, I can easily go to one side or the other. Um and so it's, it's not easy to, like, to look at this and say, how can we bridge the gap? I think that our, our, we are very comfortable with finding one side or the other, um, but I want to kind of practice it. Um, so let's look at... Oh, sorry, I have... Let's see. The wrong way here. Okay, so, so my, my point is that we can find unity in this, um, And I guess we'll go to this discussion first. Yeah, that makes sense. So the discussion question, the second one that I want to talk about is, in unity, as we're looking at predestination and free will, Calvinism and Arminianism, like we talked about before, we want to find unity in belief to an extent. Joe mentioned atheists. I heard someone up here talking about Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which, I mean, if some of you guys don't know, they do a lot of the protests at soldiers' funerals and have some pretty serious beliefs that they're very committed to. Um, but the discussion is, uh, at what point do we draw the line with differing beliefs? At what point do we say, like, yeah, let's work for unity uh, amongst a disagreement, amongst two sides of an argument? And what point do we kind of say, we, we draw the line and say, we can't really find unity here, so let's, let's work on correcting belief? Um, so I'd like to hear what you guys think as, a, as tables, as groups, um, at what point do we draw the line? So, and I guess I can give you some examples. Uh, do, we, do we accept the beliefs of an atheist for the sake of this unity that it talks about in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians? Probably not. That would be one where it's like if someone doesn't believe in God and they're here at church and they're like, well, if there is a heaven and a hell, I'm, I guess I'm saved because I'm part of the church. And we would say, not really. Like there is there's, there's a belief in God that uh, is pretty necessary. Um, But then you get into things like Annie was talking about, these other things that she used the word trivial, that Joe uses like the closed-handed, open-handed argument. Um, And some of these things are, like I heard a story about a church where someone was like leading a bunch of small groups, and they went to the pastor and said, "Uh, we really love leading small groups, uh, but we have all these questions that people have brought us about the virgin birth, and we don't believe that the virgin birth is real. We believe that Jesus was born of two humans and so that like what you know like do we if you were that pastor is it like okay well we're unified in the bond of the spirit so even though you guys believe something different uh, it's okay is that okay like do we draw the line there or do we draw the line because someone's wishy-washy and they can't pick one side or the other of this argument and they ascribe to Molinism like Higgins I'm just kidding he's not wishy-washy but, but I would say, like, for the virgin birth, I would personally say, no, we don't, we, we don't, like, look for unity there because there's a little bit of belief that needs to be corrected. But for Molinism, Calvinism, Arminianism, I think, yes, we can still find unity. So w- at what point would you say we draw the line? Go ahead and talk in your tables and we'll keep going. All right. So does anyone uh, have any, any, like, anything to add to the discussion? Anyone? Thought someone at their table said something really profound. Uh, Joe's got the microphone, and if you raise your hand, he can bring it to you. Over here, Joe. So, yeah, at what point do we draw the line when it comes to differing beliefs within the church?
0: Yeah, so we were just uh, talking about the marriage relationship, and uh, we were just talking about how when you fight in a marriage, it's because you're nitpicking. And how, like, when it's truth, you just. uh, it, it, like, supersedes it, you know, like, with discipline with your children stuff. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Over here on the other side of the room. All
2: right. Um, so I was... What we were talking about is how you have to keep the close-handed issues firm, so things that are creedal... Um, those, we really can't fudge on theology. But in the way that we treat people, it needs to be necessary. Like, do whatever is necessary to build each other up. And, like, something I've been learning a lot is I've been reading a book by Brian Zond called Beauty Will Save the World. And one of the things he talks about is how something is hugely wrong with the church is we just focus on theology. We just focus on, like, the thinking about it and the spiritual things about church. But we don't think about beauty at all. We don't think about how we're acting. Is it beautiful like everything Christ did? Because everything he did was beautiful, and so is a way we're treating somebody because of their beliefs beautiful might be an important thing to yeah. consider.
1: Good. Over here. Oh, we got a few. I'll
0: get, I'll get living good on the way. Uh, one thing that came up, uh, or one thing I kind of realized was uh, I have a hard time with justifying the need to draw the line in a lot of different beliefs. Uh, especially not, In the example that you gave, there's definitely a need, but there, uh, among, among the congregation, I, it, the, the drawing the line almost causes a, a need to, you know, one side is arguing a case and def- has to defend, and one side's being offensive and, and causing a conflict. Um, so the need to draw the line is a lot less in communities or in the com- uh, congregation. But once you go into leadership, that's where the line really starts Need to be defined, and those are, those are the things where you need to figure out, okay, yeah, you do have the creedal understanding, and you do have the, yeah. the basics, the
1: fundamental uh, blocks down. Yeah, so, okay, so uh, I guess I would ask you, in your community, in your group of friends, if you, if you have a friend who you find has a belief that's, a, like, if we're using the creed, as the Nicene Creed, if we're using that as a... Uh, as a standard, what, what is, where do you correct even your friends and help them, you know and so, yeah, that's great yeah, so by asking questions, allowing for growth and I think I agree, I think when, when, there, when it comes to leadership, there is like a I guess a hard line where you think, I think creedle things should be pretty good, but I, I like that answer when you're in friendships and community allow for questions and allow for growth
0: um, a few different things. Uh, I think it depends on what your goal is as a group. If your goal is to spread life and growth in general, I think that non-Christians could work with atheists too.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but also, I agree with what was said earlier. Are we even supposed to draw the line? I don't think that that's our responsibility necessarily. I think that God will draw the line ultimately. Um, and also, who's to say that we're right? How do we know that we're right? If we're right about something, then we can draw the line. But we might be wrong about what we think is right. So uh, I think that there's a lot of grace, and I think that, like, for pastors who preach God's word, they're not going to get everything perfect, but because God is so gracious, he will still work through the imperfect preaching and the imperfect word, and even a wrong message. That's not exactly right.
1: All right. So we're looking at uh, truth. Like you said, God's word, I think, is greater. There are even some churches who, who would say, like, Like, I've heard of churches who don't have preachers because they don't want preachers to get in the way of God's word. Uh, Next. I don't know who this girl is. It's my wife.
2: Um, We talked about that it's important to, well, what we think is a good place to draw the line is if it's affecting a family or affecting them poorly um, and if it's causing harm. And then we also talked about if a belief, like the virgin birth idea, if it's something, a belief that's causing them to create a, a theology that's extra-biblical, extra-biblical, yeah. yeah, is that right? Yeah. Where they're having to take something that's not in the scripture and build a theology around it, that that can get really dangerous and start leading into some really dangerous thinking. Yeah. And so, that's what we said.
1: That's good. All right. Well, yeah, so that's, that's great. So, we, we, I think we, I've heard from a few different people, uh, Michelle, you mentioned creedal ideas. Andrew, you mentioned the creed. Uh, and Chris, you mentioned scripture. So, so I think the line is scripture. And like Morgan said, we, we don't want to have um, this belief built around something that's extra-biblical. So I think what, what the line is and what, uh, what we can look to is, what, does this, what do the scriptures say? What does God's word say? Um, and I want to take, like, I want to preface this by saying that, um, I didn't find this in a book necessarily, I didn't find this in the scripture as, as far as like I looked up a verse and found this regarding this discussion, regarding this debate, but I just want to go through a little practice of realizing how the two sides of the argument, um, if we had to, we could find unity in these things. So let's take the first thing, the total depravity or uh, the depravity issue. Um, I think that the important thing to realize here uh, is that when we look at this, it's, we can get into the details of it and say, like, what does depravity mean for us? Are we totally unable to save ourselves? Are we totally, like, un- even unable to choose God? Um, but really, we, in the midst of that argument, what we could say to find unity is that God saved us. We don't have any power to save ourselves. Just like, if we go back to this analogy, just like this chisel couldn't have gotten up off the table and sculpted a statue of David, out of a block of marble, but it can be used to do that. Um, the, the, the point is that depravity says that God is our savior, that, that on our own we can't do it. Um, for election, we can look at this and say that whether we know for sure whether we're right about who's the elect, whether God picks and chooses who's going to be saved, or whether, I mean, it's open to anyone and, and it's up to us, what well, we can look at that what we can see from this is that he's sovereign and that he, he picks, I mean, he saved us, um, that he calls us to live in a certain way. And that, And I think the, like, what I was thinking about, and as far as election goes, if you're a Calvinist and you say God has a certain amount of people, or if you're an Arminianist and you say that he, it's open to everyone, the important thing is that we don't know. Uh, for an Arminianist, we don't know who like, who will be saved the Bible says some will get to heaven and will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, or if you're, like I've always wondered if in the Calvinist viewpoint, how do we look and say this person is elect or this person isn't, even, even in the church. The person next to you uh, by the theology alone says that this person might or might not be elect. Um, but I think that the, if we look at it that way, it gets very confusing, but we can say that Jesus calls us to live in a certain way, uh, and that he calls us to treat people in a certain way. Um, he, he's sovereign. He, he, whether we are right about it or we're wrong about it, um, he has the answers. Um, and remember, I think, in this point, to exalt man and saying that he has a choice or he doesn't have a choice isn't to slight God and vice versa. Um, if, if we believe that God has chosen for us, uh, predestined us, then that's okay. Like, that's a, a picture of his sovereignty. You know, like, the Calvinists would say that God is totally sovereign and he's totally picked us um, and chosen us. But the Arminiists, by saying that, uh, that man has a choice, it's not saying that God isn't sovereign. Um, atonement. Uh, the Nicene Creed, like we've talked about, says that for us and for our salvation he came to save us. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing, Is both sides of the argument can say that Jesus came down in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the fact that we should have been lost. He saved us out of that. You know? And so, our sins have been taken care of. Our sins have been paid for. Um, and even a five-point Calvinist who says that uh, the, the atonement is limited in the sense that it only works for those who are predestined, even that Calvinist would say, that's a beautiful thing that Jesus would save us. Um, that that He would do that for us. That a deity, a God, would come to Earth and live as a man and die for us. Um, so you can see that there's there are ways to kind of look at the argument and say we can agree uh, on certain things. That we Joe had a, a week where he we it was the actually the panel was answering questions. Um, and I took a couple of these questions, and I want the biggest thing uh, that I wanted to point out is like, let's look at this question. The question is, if Calvinism is the belief in predestination, then why would Jesus send us out? Uh, why would Jesus send out his disciples in the Great Commission? Um, and we can argue about this. We can say, like, the Calvinists uh, would say that we're pre- predestined to tell people about Jesus. That we're sent out to have like a, a predestined encounter. Um, And the Arminius would say, well, we're going out to talk to someone who might not be saved and who might never hear the gospel. But I think the important thing that we can find unity in, uh, in this point, is that sometimes we aren't called to make those decisions. Sometimes it's not up to us to be right or wrong about that. Uh, And the the key is obedience. Um, And like we see, like this question even mentions the Great Commission. In the Bible, Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. So whether, like, whether we believe that it's predestined or not, I think that the more important thing is that we are called to obey the Great Commission. We're called to obey and go out and do that. Another question is, what is the point of loving others and helping guide those to God if it's predestination or if it's predestined? And again, the Bible gives us the great commandment. Jesus said the, uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, and second is like that, and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think, I think the biggest point that I want to make is when we're looking at arguments like this, when we're looking at discussions and debates that are inside the church, uh, we can get really bogged down with the details. We can get really bogged down with fighting over who's right. Um, but I think there's a part of it where we can, we can pull back and we can look at Scripture and say, we're called to, to be obedient to the Scriptures. We're called to be obedient and... I think, like, as we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, we're about to go over to the main building. We're going to hear Pastor Brady talk about part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And Jesus calls us to live in a way that's way different than uh, the world tells us to live. Uh, and And especially the Sermon on the Mount gives us some pretty clear action items where we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do this. And if we were to get into the arguments of that, then we might fail at, Obeying God, and so I think the important thing is here is to obey uh, the Word of Scripture. Use Scripture as our as our standard. Um, so to summarize, kind of in a sense, to wrap up this whole month, uh, we've learned about free will and predestination. Like Joe said at the beginning of this month, a little over half of you had heard of this Calvinist versus Arminianist debate, um, and hopefully at the end of this, you would say, "I know a lot more about this," and I could. Uh, I could tell you what I believe. I could tell you what other people believe. Um, but I think I'd like for us also to be able to say, I can look, like if you're a Calvinist, I can look at it someone who believes in Arminianism, and I can say, yeah, they're my brother. They're my sister in Christ. Because because of the fact that we're supposed to look for unity, I can see how we all are after the same thing. We're all after Jesus. Um, and I think even uh, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, who had lots of debate, and they were very strong on their beliefs, uh, it's, it's clear to us that they're after Jesus. They're searching for Jesus. They're searching for truth. Um, and I think that's what we're called to do as believers. We're called to uh, to search for truth in the scriptures, and I think that's the best way that we can do that. Um, I would hope that as an Arminianist, you would have gained respect and understanding for the Calvinist viewpoint, and vice versa, that um, that at the end of this month, as we go into the next topic, that you can say, man, I really respect the beliefs. I can, I can see where that makes sense. I can see where um, what the other person believes, what, how they can see that, how they can believe that, and that there would be respect and understanding there, and that, that we would be looking for unity, like I said. Uh, and the other thing, too, is if we understand God fully, like, I think the reason that these debates and these discussions are so important to us and our theology is that if we had the answers, if we understood God fully, then in a sense he would cease to be God. He wouldn't, like, if we could fathom him, then he wouldn't be uh, above us, if that makes sense to you. Uh, so, so I think it's important for us to recognize why, uh, why it's important to not have the answers and why it's important to hold these things in an open hand and not have these closed-handed issues um, uh, so, yeah, so here's, here's what we've talked about this month. And like I said, I want you to be able to look at this and say that you understand. As, as Mill Sunday School, as we look and we learn things, I, I hope that we can look at this and say, I know what all this means. I know the two sides of the argument. But at the same time, I recognize that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ and that we love each other and that we work for one another, that we would sacrifice for one another, that we would. Um, share with one another the things that we've been given, that we would uh, take care of each other, that we, like, give a cup of cold water to our be- other believer, and I mean, to anyone, really. Um, but I'm hoping that, uh, that unity is our goal, that unity is our uh, desire within the church and within these arguments. So, uh, yeah, so this is the last part of this series, and uh, let's just pray as we close out uh, this month and this week of talking about free will and predestination. Lord, I just, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the intricacies and the complexities that are in your word. Uh, Lord, I've, I want to thank you that we, in a sense, can't understand all the things about you. Lord, that you are so magnificent and you are so, uh, so great. Lord, and that we, in a sense, just have to trust you, God. We just have to trust you for... Um, Trust you in knowing that as much as we want to learn and think that you are truth and that you are uh, you are the light, Lord. And so I just ask that uh, as we go out from here, that we can look at these two sides of an argument uh, and we can see, Lord, that you are uh, you are above it all, God. That we, as we argue and as we debate and we discuss, Lord, I pray that unity would be our goal, Lord. That um, even in the midst of our disagreements. Lord, that you would, uh, you would just draw us together as a body, Lord, as your bride, um, and that the heart of what we're after would be unity, Lord. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.